0: The book of Revelation chapter 1. And this is the second of we don't know how many messages on the book of Revelation. But this morning we're going to look at the greeting to the seven churches. So let's read our text there. Verse 4 down to verse 8. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We uh, began looking at this book last uh, uh, week and uh, just outlining... uh, some of the unique characteristics of this book. And it's really seen in that first word, the revelation, or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And we, uh, we explored a little bit about apocalyptic literature, the significance of images that seek to tell a story, much like uh, in a modern-day example, The Lord of the Rings, or C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia, and things like that. Uh, using pictures to convey uh, a, a, a historical reality, and C.S. Lewis, of course, uh, was uh, res- conveying a historical reality, and uh, much like uh, 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 Tolkien was doing in *The Lord of the Rings*, he was he was reflecting the events of his day through the stories that he was telling, and uh, they both did that through those powerful, sometimes frightening images that they used. And uh, in the book of Revelation, John in this vision is given an, an unveiling of Jesus and the kingdom of God and the, the future of the things that would take place through uh, a series of images. And, and also along with the the idea of apocalyptic literature is the significance of numbers as we saw, uh, numbers like ten and a thousand and seven all which traditionally to the in the Jewish mind carried the idea of completion and perfection and uh, we uh, see that here in the greeting of John to the seven churches that are in Asia so we're going to see a lot of the use of that number seven and ten and uh, a thousand and things like that to convey, to tell, uh, create an impression in our minds. And so in this greeting we see first off in verse four the uh, the recipients of this book or of this vision. Um, we touched on it a little bit last week in the introduction, talking about who these Churches uh, were. The seven churches uh, that he addresses here are just that seven churches. Now, there were more than seven churches in that area. But John is using seven as, again, a perfect number. He's taking these seven churches as. Uh, emblematic of all churches in that time and in all times down through the ages even up to the present day so that the message to these churches has a lot to say to us today so it's the message of Jesus to our church and so but these churches are representative that the issues that were going on in each one of these churches is representative of, representative of the troubles and the challenges that all churches face in different places at different times. It's also, it also kind of forms a kind of a loop as well uh, when we talk about these churches. See, in, in addressing the churches from Ephesus to Laodicea It kind of starts in Ephesus and goes up around each one of the churches and comes back down around in a kind of a loop. So that is an easy way of remembering it as well. But uh, that makes the address then very realistic for us, very practical for us. Because if if it wasn't just those seven churches, but brought in all of the churches, not just the churches in Asia Minor, but all churches everywhere who would read this, it also brings in all churches in all times. So we can, through the number seven, we as we see it as a perfect number, we can expand that picture in many directions, in terms of space and time. And so when we hear John addressing the seven churches, or Jesus addressing the seven churches, we are able to uh, uh, hear those words ourselves. Just as specific New Testament letters were written to, say, Titus or Timothy, uh, ultimately ultimately we know that it it didn't just terminate with them. It was meant, these letters were meant to be read in all of the churches, and that all the people were to learn and to grow by that. And so... That's the first thing that we want to see. We want to see who were the recipients. And then we see the greeting proper. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings of the earth. Remember when we ended Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said to go into all the world uh, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We saw that in last week's message that, that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus had set in motion had inaugurated a whole series of events that are still working themselves out even till this present day. And you might say, well, isn't that a long time for things to work themselves out? How are we to know that you know, God is still in the game after 2,000 years? Well, we can also go back into the Old Testament thinking about the promises that God made to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus as well. And also remind ourselves that though the people of God went through a whole host of ups and downs, they became a kingdom, they were in Egypt, not in that order, they were in Egypt and then became a nation, became a kingdom, and then you have the time of the judges for 400 years, you have the monarchy for hundreds of years again. But in all of that time, God through world history was working out his promises until that day came when the angels appeared to those shepherds in Bethlehem and says, behold, there is born unto you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in that announcement, the promises made 2,000 years before, which people may have started to think were forgotten about or God had just left the bu- building altogether, uh, were, you know, were simply gone. But nevertheless, there it was. He came just as God said. And we also, even though 2,000 years have passed since the writing of this letter, we must also remember that God works over a space of time. And uh, he has his purposes. And what we're seeing even today, despite the opposition, despite all the difficulties that the church faces in many parts of the world, God is bringing his people in from every nation and language and culture into the kingdom of God. And so we are patient. We possess our souls in in patience. But here is this greeting, grace and peace. Uh, Grace to you and peace from God. Now this is a wonderful greeting, and, uh, and sometimes we skip over these greetings, but it's so important especially in light of who is the letter addressed to well if you go on the first church that you will meet is uh has been popularly known as the loveless church the church in ephesus they were doctrinally sound they were they they had stood up against the tide of culture in many ways but they had lost their first love and many other churches were uh uh they were Uh, tolerating things they shouldn't be tolerating. And Jesus said in various places, I have this against you. And yet, when he comes to these churches, he doesn't come with a battering ram. He doesn't come with judgment. He begins by saying, grace and peace to you. That's in keeping with who Jesus is, isn't it? How did Jesus come to His scared, terrified disciples who not only were terrified of what would happen to them, but what they did to Jesus by running away and denying Him? First words out of Jesus' mouth were, Peace to you. Peace to you. That's the the basis on which now God deals with us. The basis on which he comes to us, notwithstanding all the things that need changing in our lives, notwithstanding all the things in our past and all the, you know, where we find ourselves, we might not find ourselves in a good place or the place that God wants us to be in our lives. But nevertheless, he comes to this group of churches with whom he has a lot to talk about. But the first words are grace and peace. How do we reform? How do we move forward? How do we repent? How do we grow? We grow, says Peter, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How are you saved? Paul says by grace are you saved through faith and not not of yourself. That is the foundational basis by which we approach God. And it separates us. Because our approach to God is a an approach of faith the instinct of man is to do and then to receive from god but the biblical approach is to receive to understand what he has done on our behalf and in that to rest and from that to grow and to repent now jesus had a, a, a you know some significant Things to say to the churches that where they had fallen, where they had fallen into grave error and condoning things that they shouldn't condone, but nevertheless, how were they going to come back from that? How are they going to move forward? And how do you work that through in your own life when you have sin in your life? When you have things in your life that you know needs changing, when God puts his finger on something, what's your instinct? Grace to you. Grace to you. That's Jesus. That's His whole operating principle. His whole operating system. Right? We put an operating system on our computer and the operating system on the computer runs all the programs. Microsoft Word and Adobe and all all your Spotify and all these things that runs all these programs, that's the operating system. And grace is the operating system when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. And He reminds them of that here. Grace is simply God's undeserved favor to us not by works, Paul says in Ephesians 2, not by works, lest any man should boast, lest any man should try to get the glory for himself. And he said, me and God work together to get me where I am. God said, no, I will have all the glory. It'll be all of me or it will be nothing. And the churches in, uh, in Asia here, they had to be reminded of that. That whatever is going to be said, whatever they go through, Grace and peace will be uh, their way of operating in all things. And if it was true then, it's true now. As we think about our own approach to God as individuals and as a church. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and was and who is to come. Now here we see The Trinity. We see a Trinitarian uh, uh, greeting. Remember Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go out in the name of the Trinity. Teach them in the name of the Trinity. Bring them under the authority of the Trinity. Each one, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with their own specific roles in redemption. And yet, one God And here, God is taking His people back in this language of from Him who is and was and is to come. Well, that's the very idea of the word Yahweh. The Lord. When God revealed Himself to Moses, Moses said, Who are you? And what shall I say to the children of Israel who are in Egypt? That who you know who has sent me to you? What will I, answer will I give? God said, "I am that I am. I was, I am, I will be. I exist. I do not change. I that is that is to the glory of God. I do not change. And you can imagine how that would have been received by the children of Israel, who for 400 years were in slavery." God is saying to them, I am faithful to my covenant. And I will fulfill my purposes for you in spite of the passage of time, in spite of all the troubles. And now, John is lifting that out, or rather, uh, Jesus, as he's addressing the uh, churches, in uh, uh, the seven churches, is reminding them that just as the people of Israel suffered and went through that crucible. God delivered them. So I will deliver you. I will deliver you in your hour of tribulation. I will deliver you when uh, uh, you face that oppression in in your home, in your community, at, at your work. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am the God that does not change and so God is saying that history is, history is repeating itself as it were here. That's why it's so good for us to familiarize ourselves with, with what the Bible says. Then you're able to transplant that into your own experience and your own life and say, look. Look at how God in His unchanging ways and His unchanging purposes delivered His people and then ultimately... Through that people brought Jesus, the Savior. Through the tribe of Judah. Through uh, the, the family of David, born in Bethlehem. Crucified. Paying the price for our sins and rising again in triumph over sin and death. And therefore He now takes that same kind of language and applies it in our own current situation and say, what Are all of these foes in light of that? And God is saying the same God who acted in history in the past is the same God who is with you now. And, he says, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. What are we to make of these words? The seven spirits. Does God have seven spirits? I thought that God was three in one. Again, we come back to that word seven. The seven churches. Perfect representation of all the churches in all ages. Well, we take that same idea and we apply it here. We know from reading Scripture that God, the Holy Spirit, is not seven different spirits. That God is not seven But again, he is getting across to us this idea of perfection and wholeness and completeness. He is again uh, leaning heavily upon the Old Testament Scriptures, this time in Isaiah. Look at what it says in chapter 11. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. centuries before he's saying this from the branch of his root shall uh, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit now that's Jesus he is the one that will come from the house of David from his physical body and the spirit of the Lord notice uppercase spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What is he saying there? Is there a separate spirit of knowledge and power and separate spirit of all? No. He's saying the Holy Spirit who will come upon Jesus will give Jesus all of these things. It's again describing the spirit of God in the perfection of who He is. He's saying to the churches, the perfect Holy Spirit of God in all His fullness, in all His operations to convict and to strengthen and enlighten will be yours. Whether you're thrown in prison and you have to endure or you're simply sitting at your kitchen table in the morning reading the Word of God, the Holy Spirit in His fullness is has been given to the church and so we see uh, even in our, our uh, in our bulletin this morning jerry bridges gives a wonderful illustration of the daily work of the holy spirit in our lives and challenges us about how are we actually leaning on the spirit he says do we really believe we are dependent on the holy spirit to enlighten our understanding do we really believe that do we cherish the Spirit, the Spirit's work and his fullness in our lives? Are we careful about not grieving the Holy Spirit? Or do we depend on our own intellectual ability in the study of Scripture? I suspect that many of us, while giving lip service to dependence on the Spirit, actually depend on our own intellect. The seven spirits who are before the throne of God spirit of power, wisdom. We need these things every day. So what John is doing is saying all these things are yours from God the Holy Spirit. You are about to suffer. You are about to go through a crucible. You may say, well, I have not endured any of those things. Well, some of us to some degree, in one degree or another, have in some form or another in this life. And there are Like I said last week, we are not in the majority when it comes to the Christian church. Most of the Christian church is living in societies where they are oppressed for their faith. And this becomes routine for them. And you can imagine what words like this might mean to them. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and the firstborn, of the dead, the rulers of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the faithful witness. An interesting way of describing Jesus. He is faithful. He is faithful in letting us know who God is. John says in his Gospel that the Son who is in the bosom of the Father has made Him known has borne him witness. He's really shown us what God is really like. He is the faithful witness and no matter in other words no matter what it cost Jesus in through his sufferings, he bore witness to who the Father was, especially on the cross. So when you see Jesus hanging there, you say, "Look at how holy God is." Jesus was witnessing to the character of God there. Look at how holy He is. And He was also saying through that same act, look at how loving and gracious God is. Never were the characteristics of God so gloriously displayed to the human race as those few hours that Jesus hung on the cross. And that's why we make much of the cross. That's why it has to be central every time we come together as believers in this church. And why Paul said, May I, des- I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because out of that, a whole multitude of glory, God's glory, flows out. Jesus is the faithful witness. He witnesses to us through His, His amazing obedience. All the things that God intends to do. How many times have we read in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, let it be so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. That the Scripture might be fulfilled. He is the faithful witness. He, he, not just way back then. Not just in the book of Revelation or in the Gospels, but here He meets with us every Sunday and He is speaking to every one of us by His Spirit and He's witnessing to the truth. I'm just an ambassador. I'm just a mouthpiece for the the true witness. Jesus Christ who implores you to believe the testimony and not keep walking out through that door saying maybe another day, maybe another month, or maybe another year. Do you know what you're doing when you leave in unbelief? When you come in and out and in and out in unbelief and say, this is not for me, this is for someone else? No, friends. Jesus is the faithful witness. And there's no middle ground for us to say, I'm not here or there, I'm in the middle. No. We either believe Him, or we don't believe Him. John says in his first epistle, we have made Him a liar, if we have not believed the testimony that He has given about His Son, that He is the Savior of sinners. And by extension, to believe what Jesus makes known about God the Father. And so Jesus prepares us. He's here in this book to prepare us for the things that have happened, the things that are happening, and the things that will happen. And we dare not find ourselves trusting in our own intellect, our own ability, our own goodness. But to do the right thing, to do the wise thing, to do the urgent thing, and that is to come now and find yourself in this God safe and secure from all the things that He will then unfold upon the world. And so from Jesus who is the faithful one, He also then in that and through that calls His people to be faithful. If He is faithful, if He was faithful unto death, if He was faithful unto the death of the cross where the curse of God was laid upon Him, His people then, as they move through the trials at work or at home or in school. Wherever they find them, they must also emulate Jesus by being faithful even unto death. And he will remind the, the churches later on will see about that. And so he is God's faithful witness. He goes on. He says he is the firstborn from the dead and the rulers of the kings of the earth. He's the firstborn from the dead. That means that if Jesus is the head, he is the head of the church, his body. We are the body of Christ. If the head rises, if the head lives, the body will live. That's why he's called the first fruits. The first fruits were the, the, the crops in Old, Old Testament that were brought before God as a token of all that would come in behind. And as these churches face their challenges, face the suffering and indignities of living in a sinful world, they must know that Jesus has overcome sin and death. Where else are you going to hear that? Who else in world history has ever said, I have overcome sin and death. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever, it's one thing to say it, but How do you back that up then? He backs it up by the historical reality of His rising from the dead, of it being proven by so many people, and then the Old Testament Scriptures in so many places reinforcing that. So Jesus died according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised again according to the Scriptures and then seen by over 500 people at one time, many of whom are still alive. That gives us overwhelming assurance of what He claims here, that He is indeed the firstborn of the dead. And He uh, he is the ruler of the kings on on earth. The Father, because He submitted unto death, the Father has placed all power and glory into His hands. He goes on to expand on that. To Him who loves us a glorious mixture of the character of God here. The power of his rule and yet the tenderness of his love. To him who not loved us but loves us. It's in the present. What is that saying to these churches? Who he's, he's getting ready to talk to them. He's laying the groundwork. He's got a case against them. They've, they've really got to get their act together but grace and peace, love they're all there. All those ingredients, He comes at them with Very at the very beginning. He who loves us. He's a living Savior. He's a living King. His love is a present love. And how does He demonstrate that? He has freed us. This is something in the past. His love is not in the past, but that which He did is in the past. He has freed us from our sins by His blood. People define God's love by... oh. Did I get that job? Or did I get that promotion? Or well, I guess, where is God? I've got this trouble in my life. This, this that, that. And, and we put question marks over the love of God every new thing that comes along. Friends, do you realize that we will live forever? But these things that we scrimp and, scrimp and save for here and that we put so much stock in, things and even our, our, our physical lives, our bodies... These things will one day disintegrate. But our souls live forever. And it's there where Jesus paid the ultimate price. And it's there where he showed his greatest love for us. Herein is love, John says. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and what? Gave his son as the propitiation for our sins the sacrifice for our sins, the one who bore the wrath of God, that's where God's love is ultimately manifest. And that's why you will find believers in and across the world, as we often read about in our prayer notes, who are willing to say, prison, I will endure it. Death, loss, want, I will endure it. Why? Why would you do such a foolish thing? Because I know that if they take my life, I will be in the presence of Jesus my Savior and I will live in His eternal kingdom of love forever and ever. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, said Luther. This is how God greets His This is how he, He comes to us and lays the foundation for the things that He must say to us and the things that He will do through us. He says at the end, I am Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and who is to come, the Almighty. Again, going back to much like we read at the first. Him who was and is and is to come. Alpha was the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega was the last letter in the Greek, Greek alphabet. And God is basically saying, I am the God of all time and creation, and I am the God who sovereignly sees everything to its intended end. He's not a God who is presiding over a riot, over things that might turn out one way or might turn out another, but He's saying, I am the God who intends not only creation but what that creation is moving toward. I am the God that works in history to bring history to its ultimate end. And that is the glorification of mine. I am Alpha and Omega. One commentator says that in the terrible days in which he was writing, John's stayed his heart. He kept his heart on the changelessness of God. Those are just the things that God is. He, he talks about there as well the, the things that God has done. As I said who, who loves us and has freed us by, uh, 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 from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom priests To God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He made us a kingdom. Again, if you were living under the shadow of Rome at this time, when there was evil swirling all around you, and you didn't know if you were going to live another day, and you were reminded here that God has made you into a kingdom. You and all your fellow believers and believers all over the world. And you have a king who, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which shall never end. And now you are empowered by His Holy Spirit to live obediently unto Him, to love Him, to speak His truth. He says also that He has made us a kingdom priest to His God. He's again drawing heavily from the Old Testament here by imagining us going back and seeing the Levites going in and out of the temple with lambs and bulls and goats and different sacrifices, uh, interceding for the people because of their sins. And now he's reimagining a new priesthood, not of blood, of lambs and goats or any of these things, but... Priests like us going into Disable every Sunday with sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving which we prepare through the week. Which we get ready for and say, Lord, help me to come into Your house with joy and thanksgiving and gratitude. To go uh, offering up to You the, lips, the, the praises of my lips and my heart. He has made us priests unto our God. What a what a calling we have every Sunday. How we should be about our business, not letting not letting the world break the walls of the Lord's day down and trample with its hooves and turn the water into muck and mire. But to preserve that day because it's a day holy unto the Lord as John will say, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The day, it's not the, the Lord's hour. We're priests unto God. We have a high calling in this world. Not only to praise God, but just like the Old Testament priests did, they interceded for the world that was around them. That's what the priests did. They not only spoke to God for men, they spoke to men for God. But they interceded for those around them. And that's our calling as well. As priests unto God, we We go to God in prayer about the salvation of our neighbors and our friends, that the Holy Spirit would open up their heart, that God would forgive their sins and bring them into His kingdom, that they might know His love and His grace as well. What a high calling we have. As uh, 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 He outlines here, and this is just the greeting. This is just hello. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is just, John erupts in praise here. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He has done all of this. He is is the creator of the universe, and yet He freed us from our sins by His blood. Is there anything else that John could say in that but... To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Where else do you go but to praise and to worship? Where else can we go but to fall in faith at the feet of Jesus and praise and worship this morning? To him be glo- I hope that that's, that's what you feel when you come to church, when you hear the gospel, whether it's here or hearing the gospel in, in other forums. You ever feel like that? Does it ever over, overcome you? To Him be glory. Or is the Apostle Paul, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His ways past finding out. Does that ever overcome you at times and you just have that deep sense of worship as you think about what Jesus did for you? This is how John uh, uh, feels here. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. He came once. He will come again with the clouds. He came uh, comparatively quietly on that quiet night in Bethlehem. But now He is coming in the clouds and every eye will see Him. It will be a universal disclosure. Every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. This takes us back to the malice with which Jesus was rejected and crucified. And now that is extended to the nations and all who despise and reject the Lord Jesus. Even so, nevertheless, Amen. Even so, let it be. These things are all part of God's plan. How How would we find ourselves in that situation then? Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. There will be those who welcome Him, but there will be others who, when they see Him, they will still have this weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will still have this sense of rejection in their hearts and how terrible it will go for them. But we have in this greeting then, friends, a disclosure of who Jesus is. His greeting his grace, his love, his commitment in all his fullness to the churches that he is going to speak to. He's going to remind them of who he is, remind them of their calling. Their need to be faithful even in even when they're under the gun, even when they're living under satan's shadow, and that's a, a an image of living under the Roman government. Be faithful Don't take shortcuts, because I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so, as we uh, uh, conclude this look at the greeting of God, let us use that to undergird everything that we will be challenged in as we continue to walk through the book of Revelation together. Let's pray.